Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Support comes from ServiceNow, the AI platform for business transformation. You've heard the hype around AI. The truth is, AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. ServiceNow is the platform that puts AI to work for people across your business. Removing friction and frustration for your employees. Supercharging productivity for your developers. Providing intelligent tools for your service agents to make customers happier. All built into a single platform you can use right now. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Visit servicenow.com slash AI for people to learn more. Hello again, this is the Game Podcast from The Times. I'm Hugh Wizencroft, and well, more madness between the white lines to tell you about this week. The Premier League's advance on a kajillion goals has continued. Manchester United play their part in ensuring that we will take huge leaps towards that target. And Aston Villa thrash their title rivals, Liverpool. It's been a busy weekend. Uh, we'll also remind ourselves of a time long, long, long ago when football matches came and went without a goal being scored as well. Prepare to have your mind blown on that one. Uh, remember though, you can read the game in the Times each and every Monday. Just download the Times app, start your subscription, plenty of great journalism to get through and three of those who are regularly contributing, Matt Dickinson, Tom Clark and Gregor Robertson are with me this week. All right, guys. Hello, Hello you. How are we? I'm great. A crazy weekend though. The cover of today's uh, game supplement includes this crazy stat. 144 goals in 38 Premier League games uh, this season. Almost 3.8 goals per game so far. So have we settled into the sort of anything can happen and it's live roller coaster that we've been on so far in the Premier League? It certainly seems pretty strange. I mean, I was in the office yesterday watching the goals fly in and it, it, all the goals and all the madness in a strange way slightly takes away from any sort of analysis you know you know it's, it's incredible the the champions the all conquering liverpool i mean i feel like alison rudd should be here for this for this moment but you know they they were beaten 7-2 you, you know the mighty jürgen klopp's <laughs> team were beaten 7-2 by aston villa aston villa nearly got relegated last season i mean and they were full value for the victory as well that was it was absolutely remarkable but could have scored 10 they could they genuinely could have as paul joyce writes in his report and uh, it, but the the kind of the circus around it all takes away from you know slightly burrowing down into the the analytics of it all and how brilliant um, those performances were. You know, equally, I, yesterday I was watching and before those two games that we're going to talk about in great detail, I was marvelling at how brilliant West Ham were in beating Leicester away three nil. You know, again that's another fairly remarkable game and scoreline and. It barely, barely even you know merits a mention. Whenever when you've got Man United losing six one at home and the champions losing seven two to Villa, it's just it's it's absolutely crazy. And uh, I just hope that today we can uh, get stuck into some of the analysis around the crazy scorelines. I'm just thankful that um, like seven days after we were questioning whether the game was about to die because of handball laws and things like that <laughs> football just responded you went come on guys <laughs> we're still we're still uh, the best game around and even with empty stands and all this all this stuff that's swirling around we can still uh, create some madness and some absolute yeah just hectic enjoyment loved it also trying to we're trying to rationalize mad, madness aren't we Which yeah is, that's the um, thing that's the difficulty now that's the interesting <laughs> i mean i thought you know I, I, you know obviously the season there were goals flying in from day one and i think i saw that that sort of after the first couple of rounds of matches that actually the three promoted teams have conceded something cl close to 30 percent so you know we know fulham can't defend will never be able to defend and they're going to get relegated con conceding you know several million goals but you know Leeds we know are sort of pell-mell and you know are going to be high scoring because that's you know Bielsa wants to uh, engage in the game and we know that West Brom are going to be well full of inconsistencies and and uh, suffer a few defeats but yeah this has now gone 
sort of way beyond uh, way beyond that into a whole different realm of of unpredictability. Um, whether that's yeah, Fanler Stadia, um, the whole upside down sort of you know pre post season everything about it is uh, is is mixing up into what's hopefully going to continue. I'm slightly disappointed the phrase that Sunday league defending is now going to disappear from the football vernacular because of course that is now Premier League defending because it was atrocious from start to finish in in a couple of games. We'll talk about Aston Villa and their great start. We'll reflect on what they've done in in, in a few moments. But we've got to start with Manchester United and I loved Bill Edgar's latest number-based piece in the Times. It's brilliant. The first time England's two most successful teams in the shape of Manchester United and Liverpool were beat by five goals on the same day. Everton have scored 23 goals in their past six games. That's their best run since 1954. They weren't even in the top flight then. And what about this? You mentioned West Ham already. They scored an equaliser with their 3-0 win over Leicester. It means they have now scored and conceded 5,720 goals in their league history. So there's plenty of stats to go with this, guys. I'm not, not just, Bill. you know, we're not just, yeah, brilliant, brilliant from Bill Edgar. Only Bill. Um, only Bill could have written that exactly. But we, we have to start by asking about what Paul Hurst uh, has described in the Times as a gutless performance by Manchester United, beaten at home 6 1 by Spurs. Who is responsible, though, for the current malaise at Manchester United? I know the fans and the pundits and the journalists all have their own view on this. Is it the board, Ed Woodward, the executive vice chairman? Is it the manager, Oli Gunnar Solskjaer? Is it some of those really massively underperforming players out on the field of play? Is it all of the above? Um, Matt, I'll start with you. What do you think it is? Uh, well, I think all of the above is is is, is the closest <laughs> we're going to get to it. I mean, I think you know it, it's many. Like, I mean, I think it was only like a, a week or so ago that I was saying, look, you know, let's not let's not rush rush to judgments. Um, I think we should probably rush to judgments. Um, watching watching <laughs> some of that. I mean, I, yeah. I, first of all, just to say, it was sort of jaw droppingly bad, wasn't it? At times. I mean, I, I don't want to come over all Graham Sooness, but Pog, you know, I've, I've just tried to defend, say, Pogba a, a lot of times of just, you know, look, in him is a world-class footballer and it's a question of managing and properly getting it out. But I mean, I, I was screaming at the telly. He, he tried to do a sort of, um, some kind of pirouette, I think, over near the touchline towards the game when they were already, you know, sort of five down and sort of shrugged his shoulders when it went horribly wrong. And I just found myself thinking it's just, with that attitude at the time, you know, you know, again, at the risk of sounding like Roy Keane, you know, dives into that ridiculous penalty t- challenge, gives it away, chuckles as it, you know. And my inner Roy Keane came flying out. I was sort of, say, screaming, screaming at the screen just because, you know, you're going to get off days, you're going to get bad, you know, bad moments, you're going to get people making mistakes. But there was something incredibly sort of uh, casual about, you know, even from senior players, you know, that Luke Shaw challenge. I, I, there were a couple of moments of Pogba and that Luke Shaw challenge that seemed to me just to sort of encapsulate a team that would, yeah, I mean, I say you hate to sort of use the phrase, it seems so sort of lazy, but by that stage they had pretty much given up. And um, I think that's where it felt like a defeat that went beyond, you know, obviously beyond a bad day is because the attitude, I thought, of, of many of those players, say, including you know, what we could regard as senior players, seem to absolutely stink after an hour or so. And that's, that's where the problems start. You start thinking, wow, what's, where's this getting to in the club? Where, yeah, that's, that's the, the attitude when you're being stuffed at, stuffed at home. Tom, what, what were your thoughts watching on? I mean, I, I, I'm reluctant to say what I said after the Crystal Palace game, which was that I wasn't surprised. Um, and I'm also reluctant to say it's Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's fault because I've said that plenty of times. But I think <clears throat> Matt's touched on it there. This was above and beyond both of those things. Just organisationally, you know, a top, t- not even a top team. As I said, I've already praised West Ham. And we've said about, you know, defending just some solid top level coaching you can get a decent defensive structure in place. And yes, you go down to 10 men, but it was your striker that got sent off when you're 2-1 down. And the third and the fourth goal, I mean, the fourth goal, if you go and watch it back, Luke Shaw is stood inside Harry Maguire. There's no one playing at left back. The ball is played out to the right. Maguire kind of looks around and goes, all right, I'll go then. Luke Shaw then is in the centre-back position. He darts out and runs towards Harry Kane, who stood on the edge of the box, leaving a massive space inside the area from which Tottenham score. That is just basic defending. That is just 
very simple. Gregor, you'll you know lose 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 a man. Let's stay solid. But you know they're not. Harry Maguire wasn't sent off. It was Anthony Marshall. So there's no excuse for just basic organisational play, talking to each other. Let's keep it solid for ten minutes. I mean, Tottenham. It almost felt like watching it that Jose Mourinho perhaps is a nicer guy than we give him credit for. And he said, "Come on, lads. You know, let's let's go nice on him here. Solskjaer's a nice bloke. They could they could have destroyed them. They could have been in, you know ten if they really wanted to." You know, Tottenham were in first gear for most of it after they went four-one up. Um, so, you know, this, as Matt says, this was beyond those Crystal Palace moments where I've said Manchester United just aren't very good. This was beyond um, Solskjaer not being a very good coach, both of which I still stand by. Do you put it in particular then at the manager's door if you were to choose one of the three? Yeah, I, I do, and as I've said before, I think you know, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer is is not. Is, is has actually done incredibly well. He's done far better than I thought he would. Matt and I have both said that we didn't think he was the right man for the job, but he's actually stayed longer than we thought he would. And to f- take that team to third last season was a brilliant achievement. It, but it, it's all about, and this is what I, to me, is fascinating at this juncture with Manchester United is broadening in this com- conversation out now into what actually Manchester United are. Too much of Manchester United in the last five years has been based on what happened in the Ferguson era. They're just not a very good team. They're a, they're an okay team who realistically their aim each season will be to finish fourth. Solskjaer surpassed that last season. He did very well, but he's not a very good coach. As you could see yesterday, as we've seen already this season, he's very limited tactically, I think, and he's not got many plans and a different manager would get more out of these players, I'm sure. But there's a bigger conversation to be had here. And, you know, Hugh, you're a Manchester United fan. I'd be interested in your take. We are, we are all, all four of us on this podcast, have exper- experienced Manchester United, that Alex Ferguson era that was like no other. You know, Gregor, you were a player during that time. We've been fans, journalists. We've all seen it. There's still that hangover. And so those days like yesterday are still couched in, this is not Manchester United. That's nonsense. That Manchester United is dead. It's gone, you know, and maybe and will probably never exist within football again at any club. Modern football is completely different to that. We've got to stop couching these conversations around Manchester United in this time that they are some great, greater being. They're, they're, they're a big football club with a massive global reach, but ultimately they should just be competing. At the moment, they're just competing for the Champions League. It's a bad defeat. It probably means they need a new manager, but there's no there's there's no bigger conversation to be had. I don't think there needs to be some realism more than anything. I, I've got my views. I'll come to them in a moment. But Gregor, what do you what do you, can you respond to that? <laughs> yeah, the the first thing that, that's really worrying is that the, the defensive side of the game was really what Solskjaer has done well. It's the only thing he's done kind of well in his time at the club. The Man United's defence has always been pretty solid, and you know. Paul Ashtrow that you could have had the Benny Hill soundtrack playing in the background um, for some of those goals and it was true it was like like shambolic so you know so that's worrying itself and they've been outplayed by Brighton Palace and and now Spurs but I I still I still think that nothing really has changed we, we had this discussion a few weeks ago and you say you know Solskjaer is neither the the, the only problem nor the kind of solution he's not if Solskjaer goes, the guy who's who's employing the next manager is still Ed Woodward. He's the one who goes out and picks him, and he's the one who's who's making a, such a ham fist of trying to sign players. You know, taking it right up to the transfer deadline day, and you know, drawing out this entire this huge saga every transfer window. So, like Man United's problems are so kind of <laughs> they're structural. It's like it, the ownership and the structure is dysfunctional. Uh, the wisdom, like the wisdom of the recruitment, is highly questionable still. You know, despite a few, you know, Fernandez was like a little sticking plaster. He is signing, give everyone a lift. Uh, just like when Solskjaer arrived after Mourinho, that gave everyone a lift. It was like this, we're, you know, we found what, kind of rediscovered what Manchester United about. There's always these little sticking plasters over sticking plasters, but at the top of it is the ownership of the club. So that's the fundamental problem. And I think until you know, until they sort of bite the bullet and. And, and employ a you know a director, a director of football, or you know to take away the power in football and decisions from Ed Woodward. He's 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 
pr proven <laughs> that he's not capable of doing it. So that's the problem. That's the fundamental problem. Solskjaer, you know, at any other point in the club's history, would not be manager of Manchester United. There's, it's like if you take match, managing Manchester United off his CV, it's a ludicrous appointment. And it, yeah, so he's, you know, he shouldn't be Manchester United's long-term long -term future, but at the same time, he's not their only problem. Yeah, you could get more from the from the players, but Edward was still a guy going out and signing them, and they spent a billion pounds since Alex Ferguson left, and this is the team they have. Uh, do you want to? You've, you've basically said two of the three there: the board and the manager. Any comments on the players, Gregor? Well, I said the defence were like you know, as I said, it was a Ben Hill soundtrack. Maguire looks like he's absolutely you know devoid of confidence right now. He's, he's had a traumatic summer. You know, Greenwood's had a tough summer. I think although you can't, you know. We talk about the broader issue of all these goals going in. Man United, more than any other team, look fatigued. I've never seen them look so stretched. One thing you've got to see is when they lost the ball, they were usually fairly compact. But the amount of space they had in front of the back four, you know, they were just getting played around and that exposed the defence as well. So it wasn't just mistakes. They were exposed, wildly exposed. And I think part of that is, and I think we saw that quite a lot this weekend. And I think already we're seeing the schedule has caught up with the players. So I think there is an element of that, but I'm not making excuses because, as we say, Harry Maguire pulled down Luke Shaw in the box and let Dombele score a goal. It was comical stuff, and when he, and when he kind of allowed Harry Kane to to take the short free kick as well, you know, he just looks like he needs he needs a break. But he's the one that they were supposed to build the defence around. Well, uh, what I would say is on fatigue, Tottenham played four games in the last eight days. They didn't, they didn't look that fatigued. Certainly not as badly as Manchester United. Maybe it's emotional stress. Um, the, the, look, my issues with Manchester United, I mean, you're completely right, Gregor, in that the structure of the club is totally different to that that you'd find at a, a Bayern Munich or a Real Madrid or a Barcelona or any of these clubs at Manchester United, Juventus, are meant to be in the same category as in that they have built a long-term model around their business, which success and being one of the bigger clubs in terms of winning trophies go hand in hand. They've also um, believed, all of them, that um, if you're a successful team, you will have fans. They will pour money into the club. They will buy tickets. They will buy merchandise. You, it is it is part of your bottom line to be a successful team. And the longer you aren't, the more it will affect your bottom line. Real Madrid were terrible for about seven years. They did all they could to come back and win four Champions Leagues in five years because you couldn't you couldn't go beyond you know seven eight ten twenty years. I mean, how many years did you want to be terrible for before people stop seeing Real Madrid as the the brand that you've built? And it's that case at Manchester United where it's like the ownership group do not see their long term business structure as being tied to success. What they see it as is there is currently this year, lots of money coming in through the door. We will use that to service a debt and take money out of the club. As soon as that doesn't happen, whether that be in five years or 10 years or 25 years, then we'll sell. There isn't a point in time in which they care. It, it has become very apparent about the success of the team on the field. It isn't about that to them. As soon as it, that tide turns, they will leave. So there's no business model that's tied to success at Manchester United. And in that regard, it is a, a, a collection of mediocrity in terms of employees at the club, in terms of Ed Woodward, in terms of, in terms of the players, in terms of the management, because everyone is there without the requirement of success. There is no major organisation in the world who brings together a collection of staff, pays them handsomely, and then says, none of you need to be good at your job, which is basically what is happening at Manchester United. Ed Woodward's getting £4 million a year. He puts out a team that is horrendous and there is zero repercussions. The manager puts out a team, which I'll be honest with you, in terms of Manchester United's result, it was coming. The idea that this is a freak result, they should have conceded seven a week ago against Brighton. And in fact, it was coming during the Europa League when you guys spoke to me. In fact, Tom, we spoke, this was before we even did the podcast together. And I told you, there is no way Manchester United can win the Europa League. And when I kept saying that, people were like, no, it's ridiculous. They're the favourites, this, that and the other. In name only, unfortunately... That team is horrendous. The coaching is horrendous. The recruitment policy is horrendous. The ownership group are horrendous. Manchester United are horrendous. And there's no other way of putting it. You I, know. I, think, no, no, I think 
you were right in saying that all of those things are actually mediocre. That's you know that's even more damning. They're not horrendous. They've you know they have got some 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 really really talented players. Some of England's most talented players, but everything as a whole is mediocre. And that is the thing you're saying as you're saying, the success of the club on the pitch is secondary to the success of the club as a business. So you know that's their fundamental flaw. Until that twists and you know those priorities change, then we're going to continue seeing this. It's going to be a cycle, so we'll probably press repeat again in another month after a few wins. I thought, Gregor, I thought you were spot on. I mean, about, you know, I mean, the fact is that, you know, there is not, it's not like click, you appoint a director of football and that fixes everyone because you've got to be the right director of football and you've got to be empowered the director of football and you've probably got to have a sort of director of football who's going to work with a world-class coach as a... And scouting system. Yeah. say, the one, they've, the, the one they've got now. But, you know, it's... Um, you know, Wood, Woodward is like, you know, it's it's not, I mean, it's not unique in the sense of, you know, Tottenham, Daniel Levy, you know, is, I, I don't think we'd ever say that he is a guy who, you know, you would pick, you would choose to handpick the world's best left back, but he, um, he has made, made it work. Um, he has made, but would you say Daniel Levy has run the club well? Yeah, I'd say he has. I'd say, yeah. you know, top, top brilliantly in fact. Yeah. But uh, so exactly. So what I'm saying is, you know, it's partly about structure, but it's partly about getting the right people in in the structure, obviously as well. And and but uh, you know, I think uh, Gregor was spot on in the sense of they need someone else just taking hold. <laughs> it's ridiculous to call it, but it, it reinforces your point to some extent. You of the football department. I mean, it's ridiculous. You're talking about a football club. It should be you know, <laughs> yeah. the football department should should probably be the biggest one and the most important. But yeah, it's uh, if if we're sort of encompassing recruitment and anything that happened ground in that then uh, yeah I mean Woodward it's, it's, it, we've been th- and the maddening thing is we've been talking about this for a hundred years haven't we that Woodward has taken on too much he's trying to do three jobs he's split himself you know sort of geographically physically between London and Manchester it's you know he's you know he has skills that that have made Manchester United a lot of money but uh, he's trying to do a bit of everything because the football side of it is the sexy part as we all know well on that you know, the role that he's in, if he's stretched, he's the person to say, we need to hire someone to do this job. I mean, the idea that sort of he's pulling himself from pillar to post by any other choice other than his own, I I just, I can't see it because it's not like the Glazers are going to say, do you know what, Ed? You know, it it seems like you're doing a little bit too much. Why don't we get someone else in? They're not going to say that to him. He has to say that to them. And the fact that he hasn't makes me feel like he's inept, Matt, to be perfectly honest. Because why would you do that to yourself? Why would you do that to the club? Why would you continue to give out huge contracts, pay huge fees for players when it hasn't worked at any time during your time in charge of the club? I mean, it, it would have to be either strict obstinance on his part and and a, a desire to improve to the and prove every to everyone that he can do the job or he's being told by the glazers we can't hire someone to do that job you don't have the money or we're not going to give the remit to another person and you you can't understand why that would be i mean it's not even like manchester united is the only sports organization they own they own another sports organization they must be well versed enough in this to know that you need to pick the right people to do the the correct jobs the fact that they haven't show it, it almost underlines to me that the desire to be a great manchester united team the desire to be a team that goes far in the european cup or wins premier league titles is isn't on their agenda when they sit around the table at a board meeting on field success is way down their agenda but that's partly because you know you were talking about success earlier success for manchester united can be far many more things than it can be for lots of other clubs you know we've compared them to tottenham Manchester United still have a far greater pull than someone like Tottenham globally in terms of sponsorship, in terms of how many sponsors, in terms of the money they can get in. So if we're talking, you know, we're all, we're, it's a football podcast, we don't want to turn it into a business podcast, but if we're talking about that side of the game, which obviously we have to in modern football, Manchester United is still capable of making money because of brand Manchester United. So you're saying about success and not achieving success, I bet there would be a lot of business analysts out there who would look at the sponsorship deals and the global reach and... It becomes a joke, doesn't it? You know, whenever they concede six goals, oh yeah, but the social media account's doing well. But the sad, the reason that's a slightly dark joke is because there's a truth behind it. That is, that is a lot of what modern football has become, and, and the reason for that, Manchester United still having that pull, is because of the huge giant 
colossus of a club they were during the Alex Ferguson reign. And they're still with p- pundits who played under that, in that era, that hangover from there, you know, Solskjaer beats Paris Saint-Germain and, you know, Rio Ferdinand and people are, oh, Manchester United are back. What, what, where did they go? What, what, what Manchester United are back? You know, Gary, you know, Gary Neville is one of the great thinkers in modern football and he has lots of brilliant opinions, but he often says, this isn't Manchester United. That is referring to a Manchester United that I don't think can exist anymore, can it? That Manchester United he's referring to it's not going to exist anymore. Well, well, this is my point. The Manchester United they're referring to is a Manchester United whose business model, not to turn it into a business podcast, but whose idea of success was tied to what happened on the field and off the field. And those two things are now separate. You're right. What the current Manchester United that we're looking at, they regard success as these off-field things in terms of branding and basically in terms of bottom line. That is how the club currently defines success. And in that regard they are looking at something with not a lot wrong at the moment. Whereas we are, we, we're looking at a football side of things and we're seeing massive um, problems. They're not. But if we get back to the football for a moment, then uh, like that is all true. But at the same time, it's true that you would see a, another manager getting more from this group of players. So, yeah, you know, social, social is not the only problem, but it's also there are also moments and they keep coming quite regularly now, quite frequently that you make you realise that he's not qualified for the job. He never was. So, um, you know, yeah. So, did, but again, then Edward would be the guy who goes out and, and picks the, the next manager. And he might pick him well, but then he wouldn't. He probably wouldn't support him properly. And the structure of the club would be setting him up to fail in the same way that Josie Mourinho failed and David Moyes failed and Louis van, van Gaal failed, you know, relatively speakingly. It's definitely a kind of vicious cycle in that regard. And I'm not, in in saying and, you know, slagging off Solskjaer as I have done, I'm not defending Ed Woodward. I'm just taking it as read that Ed Woodward is a massive part of the problem, but he's not going to be one to me that changes anytime soon. But to me, when you, you know, Jose Mourinho appointing him and signing Paul Pogba, Romelu Lukaku, that was their last shot, I think, at trying to get back to that Colossus Ferguson era you know, and that's why Jose says finishing second with that team was a great achievement. And as we're all acknowledging now, that he was probably right. That was about as good as he was ever going to get. But whatever happens now going forward, if Solskjaer goes, when he goes, whoever comes in, it's so important, I think, that it, there needs to be a complete reframing of what Manchester United are. Because it, it can't help as well. You know, Gregor, you quite rightly touched on it about the players. The, the mental fatigue that must come with that pressure... You've got someone like Marcus Rashford who has had to, he's, he's clearly, as we know from his off the field work and, you know, political stances, very mature and very switched on. But in terms of a footballing sense, he's still so young. But the pressure that he's had as part of this kind of growing up in this era of trying to be the new, re, you know, reborn star of the new Manchester United, there's never a game when he can actually play badly or do try a few tricks and not come off. You know, he's back on Twitter yesterday saying, I'm sorry, you know, this is Manchester United. You know, at what point does he ever actually just get to play and just work on his game, have a few crap games, you know, then come back again? You know, the Bruno Fernandes, he's only been in England about six months and already, like, everyone's going, oh, please pull, pull a rabbit out of the hat. Please save us. Please save us. Harry Maguire... Captain Captain Marvel, you know, please, please, please save us. Because of this kind of pressure, this, the pressure is so great to be something that they can't be, something that they're not. It's just, it's got to change that whole, that whole conversation, surely. What I would say on that, Tom, is if you look at Liverpool right now, the, where they are, it's because they never ch- changed that frame of what their club should be. No, no, they, but they did. No, they no, did. No, they no did. but what I'm saying, let, let me explain it. During the 90s, the journalists, the ex-players, in fact, during the 2000s, during the 2010s, they would always have put Liverpool in the category of team that should be amongst Europe's best. And all of the players that were at Liverpool were spoken about as if they should be amongst Europe's best. And Liverpool never invested to the level that they should have a team like that. They never brought in managers who were going to create a team like that. But the fans and those looking on never changed their perception of Liverpool. And and for me, that is about standards. It's not about having a great team. It's about standards. You can, you're only, currently they're accepting mediocrity, but the only way we can describe it as that is because we all expect Manchester United to be elite. 
But as soon as you change that to a club that we expect to be mediocre, then all these players are perfect Manchester United players, aren't they? They would fit the, the mould of a mediocre football side. How can you change what the club should be over seven years after the last 30? Matt, go on. This all strikes me as getting dangerously close to that awful phrase of sort of club DNA stuff. You know, what do we stand for? Do we stand for winning? <laughs> exactly. or do we stand for champions? When actually, say, it's the sort of DNA stuff that leads you to appoint Ole Gunnar Solskjaer instead of Pochettino because, you know, he scored a very famous goal and he understands the club and Ferguson gives him, you know, a nod because, you know, okay, he's got a personal relationship with him. But, you know, you appoint a guy who you hope can do well rather than a guy who you know can do well. And that's, I, you know, I get where you're both coming from in the no, sense there's a sense of history and standards, but I, I think you do have to be careful about, say, sort of. No, but, but, but my you know, point just not is disappointing good people. No, but my point is Oxford or Cambridge aren't going to say you can get straight C's and come to our our university and then claim to be amongst the best institutions in the world. My point is, if Manchester United want to be one of the best institutions in the world, you shouldn't be even applying to be part of our our organisation unless you were going to get straight A's. I mean, it's just the standard has to be there. And I'm not saying it will never change. I'm just saying that maybe it's too che- too soon to change it. Manchester United still spend on their wage bill as much as any club. They still invest in terms of transfer fees over the last five years as much as any club. So why should we all sit back and then say, well, there are, they shouldn't be. We shouldn't be speaking about them as being one one of the best clubs in the world. They, I mean, they're still the output is still at that level. I'm not saying that we should accept a drop in standards. And yesterday was absolutely appalling, and some of the football at times has been absolutely rubbish. I'm just saying they need to become. You know, you're saying about Liverpool, and they were for a long time, and they were constantly hammered for not being good enough. But if you think about the Jurgen Klopp era, there wasn't really any. There was an acceptance that this was a new type of Liverpool and that's what Manchester United need to get to, a new type of quality club which is allowed to build and allowed to grow and allowed to accept 7th, 6th, 5th, 4th, 3rd. Surely. We co- what, what are we aiming for? What are they trying to be? Otherwise, like, what's, what's the point? And I'm saying, that's what I'm saying. So Solskjaer can be improved upon, get a new coach in. This squad can improve... But let's stop pretending that it, there should be any greater higher being. That's, that's, that's all over, surely. <laughs> I don't know. I think I think you're living in cuckoo land if you think that anyone is going to accept seventh or sixth or fifth or anything. But they did with Jurgen Klopp. But they did with Jurgen Klopp <laughs> at Liverpool. They, they didn't enjoy and now, it. And now no, they didn't enjoy it. But they saw that there was an idea in place and there was a plan, and it and it worked. There was yeah, an but overall that plan. Will plan. never exist. Well, these owners and Ed Woodward are in charge. So you, 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 the point is moot. You can't say, you know, we're going to invest, you know, we're going to we're going to back in, back this plan and accept some, you know, a drop off in standards. They've already had the drop off drop off in standards, and they don't have the plan. Okay, but um, if you're talking, I'm making a moot point. You're ta- you're making a moot point. Ed Woodward's not going anywhere anytime soon. So how so? Right, we've got a choice. You can either change Solskjaer and improve the coaching and accept let's maybe hit fourth fourth or third for a few seasons with Ed Woodward in charge, who's not going anywhere. Or we can keep going, we want new owners, the club's <laughs> dead, we want a new Manchester United, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> so boring and it's just not going to happen. So which do you rather? I'd rather go for the pragmatic approach. Get a new coach in. Let's just talk about them as a team on the level of Leicester who are challenging for the Champions League. And then forget all this nonsense. Because without Ed Woodward, which I am, I am not saying you're wrong, but that's also a moot point. Because Ed Woodward's not going anywhere anytime soon either. No. I, I just, I don't, think, I don't think it matters what, what you're saying. What our level is, I don't think it matters. You don't have that aim. You aim to be the best you can be. I don't, you know, I'm not really invested in this idea that. So what? It's really, it's, it's a, it's a narrative that's pushed by pundits that are overwhelmingly former Manchester United players. Yeah, and I say, agree, and that's part of so, my point. So what? They're, you know, they, they've played for the club for their entire careers, and that's what they're going to do. They've lived these past glories. They're gone. That doesn't matter. What I'm saying is, the next manager, yeah, we'll replace Solskjaer, the next manager will be set up to fail, just like Solskjaer was, just like Mourinho was, just like Van Gaal was, and just like Moyes was. That will not change. Anything on the football in particular uh, that they saw out on the pitch... Just before we move on. Well, I mean, if, if they're going to sign Alex Tellers from Porto and he's a left-back who, you know, has any sort of positional sense and half-decent knowledge of football, I'd say he's going to be an improvement on Luke Shaw because um, <laughs> I, nothing personal against Luke Shaw, but that guy's had more chances at a supposedly elite-level club than most players would ever get. And uh, yesterday was completely clueless. 
I think maybe we've seen uh, Eric Bay for the last time in a Manchester United jersey as well. I think you know, he's 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 got to go. <laughs> I mean Maguire. I think I think Gregor was right on the Maguire thing. I mean, I, you know, I, I I remember seeing that interview he did with the BBC and thinking, you know, here's a guy who was mentally shot to bits. I mean, you know, the rights and wrongs of what happened in Greece, a court is still to to get you know a retrial to get to the the bottom of. But I mean, his there's no doubt about it. He you know he's been messed up by by that whole episode in in a. I think in a pretty substantial way. I think you know there is a Man United footballer in him. There is a uh, a leader for them in him. But I think it's going to take. It looks like that guy is some weeks away and potentially a break from the team away, and that's just going to make things worse before they get better. Edinson Cavani might be arriving at Old Trafford as well. Does this reek of desperation? What other club in the Premier League would sign Edinson Cavani uh, on the la- on, at the end of a transfer window in which they could have signed him three weeks ago? Probably six weeks ago, yeah. Yeah, I mean, compl- <laughs> completely agree. And it's another example of the terrible ownership. Better than on the pitch, is he a better sh- better striker than Odion yeah. Igalo? Then, yeah, he is. Yeah, you know. I'm sure he'll be a decent signing, but it, it, again, it just smacks of there being no overriding plan. Right, we'll move on anyway, from cheer that. Up, guys. I'm, I'm, sure. <laughs> I'm actually thankful to you, Gregor, for, for, for saying a lot of what I should have or, or maybe could have said about Manchester United. My mood was pretty down yesterday. I felt like Patrice Everett. There was a little tear in the eye. And then I got to watch... Oh, I got don't, to, uh, don't start. I, I, I got don't get me started on Patrice <laughs> Everett. My God. There wasn't actually a tear in my eye, but I, yeah, he wasn't very happy. Um, uh, speaking of uh, sort of ex-Manchester United and ex-Liverpool players uh, in the media, it went from the sort of low of Patrice Evra to Jamie Carragher who couldn't control his laughter at some of the goalkeeping in Liverpool's 7-2 defeat at Aston Villa I mean it was it was again a bit like Manchester United it was coming I think it was coming so the way that Liverpool have defended it was very much on the edge for the last five or six games and eventually I don't know someone... about that if you're going to tell me you had a bet on 7-2 Aston Villa then no, you're no, no, no. <laughs> there, there was there was definitely going to be a game where they conceded a lot of goals I mean they, they conceded three against Leeds newly promoted team they were on the air. I mean, you know, when Roy Keane mentioned at the end of their last game and Jurgen Klopp was sort of um, against Arsenal, he sort of disappointed that Roy Keane said there were some sloppy moments. Well, the striker was sort of 30 centimetres away from being in on goal, one-on-one with the keeper, two or three occasions. I mean, you don't want to be giving chances away like that regularly. And then lo and behold, one week later against Aston Villa, they did. I mean, it was ridiculous. It, it could have been, I mean, it was seven, but I was about to say it could have been seven, eight or nine. It could have been nine, 10 or 11. I mean, it, it was it was ridiculous defending. If substituting Joe Gomez, for example, was, for me, it's one of those things where, what, what's the point? I mean, what's the point? You're defending so badly. Is it the player? Is it an individual player? Anyway, we, I, I won't go into Liverpool too much. I wanted to talk about Aston Villa because, okay, it was a remarkable win. Let's be honest, none of us saw it coming. But three wins out of three to start the season, having stayed up by a single point, is a, is, a, is an incredible turnaround. It is. I watched, I mean, I watched uh, in, in first lockdown, um, went to Villa Park a couple couple of times when we resumed and I have to say they look they look dead yeah you know, I, I, I remember coming away from a couple of matches thinking uh, they're doomed I mean obviously they, they scrambled to save themselves but there's you know there's been some super smart business since then obviously you see plenty of the championship you know there's sort of big debate as to which of those Brentford forward players that people should go for and I have to say you know Watkins always struck me as the, the obvious one if you know if you need pure goal scorer Ben Rama's a beautiful player but Watkins was I, I think definitely had potential to step up you never quite know um you know we've seen with you know Malpe's done 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 pretty well going up to, to Brighton whereas Adams going to from Birmingham to Southampton has taken a long time so you never quite know how a player's going to step up but Watkins I think it's yeah absolutely showing that he's he's Premier League uh, ability right from the start and I think the Ross Bar. I think it was really interesting watching that game, just seeing how Barkley and Grealish seemed to instantly sort of. It's almost like Grealish is looking at him like, ah, oh, you know, you're a baller like me, you know, and and Barkley enjoying playing off them. It was like these two guys are like, yeah, okay, let's go and have some fun and and do it effectively. And yeah, Barkley's a a player that we've talked about for so many years, and that no one's ever doubted the ability. We have doubted whether he's. Got quite got the mentality in different ways, uh, you know. I know. One of his previous managers was really problematic with him with his sort of uh, positioning and work off the ball and his sort of 
belief that he could sort of just do the nice stuff. But I think, you know, he's going to be a really, really interesting signing and really promising signing for them looking at that. So, yeah, they've gone from a team that looked sort of blunt um, uh, in, in when they were looking at going down last season to one that suddenly got some pizzazz about them. I'd add uh, Matty Cash into that as well. Player from Nottingham Forest that seen quite a lot of and uh, outstanding athlete. He's kind of ready made for the Premier League as well. I think he's had a really he's a great start, made a big impact for for Villa. And you know they addressed the goalkeeping issue as well. That was big for them. So their recruitment has been excellent. Matt's spoken about the rest, and I, I've said when Watkins said, I think he's about as safe a bet as has ever existed in the Championship to step up and be a success in the Premier League because he's he scored double figures from the wing. Uh, he scored, you know. I think it was 26 goals last season's uh, centre forward and again he's an athlete and he's, he's ready made for, for the Premier League so yeah they, Villa look great but they think they, you know they deserve credit for their approach too and I think I spoke last week about how Liverpool you know we've given Liverpool a lot of praise for the way they pressed against Chelsea and against Arsenal and they're sort of but Villa just outworked them they you know they, they, they outran them they outfought Outfought them, and the thing with Liverpool is that if they don't have the energy and coherence in their pressing, then it is fatally flawed because they play such a high line, and they have to do that. They have to do that to to back it up. And these and the things that we were pointing out and saying, "Oh God, aren't they brave?" I remember against Chelsea. Against Chelsea, there was there was parts that were kind of some of the analysis where Trent Alexander-Arnold and Robertson were pushing right up against their fullbacks from like the goalkeeper's throwout. And we're thinking, you know, Crikey, this is brave. Look, there's only there's only one set and a half left on the halfway line. And now when they're doing it, and Villa nick the ball back or they or they you know pop it around them, the space is there. And Watkins, you know, Watkins ran through in the second half, and he could have had a fourth goal. So as much as Liverpool didn't have you know didn't have the same energy, and and you know they weren't they weren't what we recognise Liverpool to be in their in the ter- in terms of their pressing. Villa deserve credit for that because they ran all over them. Yeah, they were fantastic, and they they you know Matt's already talked about Grealish and Barkley, and when they got the ball, they were really positive as well. They got players forward into Liverpool's half of the pitch, and that's where a lot of the goals came from. You know, if you're going to play against Liverpool, you can't just press, win the ball back, but then knock it back to the defence because that's actually playing into Liverpool's hands because they can then rush forward and press you in your own half. You have to be positive, get players forward, and they did that really well. One of my friends is um, an Aston Villa fan and I was speaking to him after the game yesterday and he said that as well as the recruitment, you know, we've all picked out our players that we think are good. He said one thing they've all got in common is that they were all hungry players with, you know, be it a point to prove Emmy Martinez, you know, I'm finally going to leave Arsenal. You don't want me, Mikel. I'm going to, I'll show you. Ollie Watkins, Matty Cash having to prove that they can step up. Ross Barkley is a great signing in that he'll he's got everything to prove. Yes, I am good enough for England. Yes, I am, you know, Chelsea, Frank, you shouldn't have let me go. Um but there are also players, when you think about it, that know the English football. A lot of these clubs and Aston Villa have been guilty of it, signing players from abroad who maybe, you know, are going to take time to bed in, get used to the style of football. They were ready to go, which in a season which had no preseason, started immediately. Was a, was a vital part of the recruitment, I think. And one other thing he said, which has been discussed amongst Villa fans, is that Douglas Louise in the midfield has come on leaps and bounds talking about you know foreign players coming to the Premier League. His performance yesterday in the base of that midfield was fantastic, with John McGinn as well, also brilliant. Um, so those players that they've got there improving after a, after a year or two at the club is also something that's been a big part of their play. And they, they were absolutely fantastic and have been so far this season. Oh, I, I would agree. I was going to say, I, th- I feel like they they've, were unshackled by staying up in the, the end of last season. And a lot of the players who were learning Premier League football, some of the players that were at Villa in the Championship, some of the players in defence in particular, have just grown and grown. And I think the freedom of being away from fighting for every point and needing to stay up and actually starting a new campaign is sort of lifted a weight off their shoulders. Tactically, I didn't think Dean Smith was great last season either. And it seems like he's learned a little bit as well about how Premier League clubs are going to come after you because it was interesting to hear them talk, a couple of the Villa players and Dean Smith afterwards, 
about how they felt they could get a result against Liverpool, which is just, you know, it's, an, it's, it's a surprising thing to hear. I know, you know, we expect sports people to go into every match, but obviously given their respective success and, and well, I guess failures, if you talk about finishing uh, 17th in the Premier League, obviously that's a success if you're Aston Villa, but in terms of being at the different ends of the Premier League last season, it's, you know, for the fourth game of the season to go into it and say, we can we can go and have these is, is you know, that's very brave. Go on, Tom. Well, I just think you make an excellent point there about the kind of the kick they would have got from staying up and from survival. And as I said, in this, you know, strange, crazy year of no proper pre-season endless games you know I wonder whether uh, after our fallout on Manchester United whether he'll agree with me on this but you know Gregor does that make a difference as a player when you think you've not had a pre-season to properly prepare if it, if you like that kind of restart period was for some teams their um, their pre-season if you like to prepare for the new season which started almost straight away Villa as we talked before became a bit more defensively astute after lockdown in the restart, kept some important clean sheets, picked up the points they needed to survive, which then, if you like, gives them the confidence. Great, we've survived. Okay, we've become a bit more solid. Add to that attacking players. That, if you like, acts as your pre-season to go forward and kickstart straight away um, this campaign. Absolutely. I mean, you summed it up. It's kind of the... You know the boost from staying up, then having the, those additions, and they are quality additions. And like, I also think that you know we could we could see even more from Grealish. Imagine how you know he he's played for Villa, and it's always been everything's been on him. And often when he's looked forward, the guy in front of him, it's not really been you know Grealish can thread thread through the you know pass through the eye of a needle, and often the guy running onto it has not been really up to it. You know, be that Wesley or anyone up front for Villa. And, now they've got now he's got Watkins. That you know that partnership could be could be dynamite. Um, so you know I think I think Villa look good. I personally my only question mark still is at, is at the back for them. I mean Mings, I like Cash. I'm not sure about Target left back for the for the standards. And well, Ezri Collins is good, but you know I think someone alongside Mings still possibly would be a good addition for Villa. I mean it's also remarkable. Another crazy thing in this crazy year of football is that they've kept Jack Grealish. I mean, you know, in any other year, we. I mean, I thought he would be leaving for someone, somewhere, for some kind of middling 50 million kind of fee. <laughs> uh, middling 50 million. Eh? It is a middling 50 million know. fee, isn't it? Let's be honest, in modern football. But, you know, they've kept hold of Jack Grealish. And he's now, as you, as we've said, probably going to have the best, maybe the best season of his career so far, playing with better players at the club that he loves. I mean, that's a great story, isn't it, in modern football? There's still 12 hours to go, Tom. Still 12 hours to go. <laughs> Fine. I mean, uh, you know, I've, I've been wrong on this podcast before. I don't mind coming back on on Thursday when he's joined. <laughs> I, I mean, I genuinely can't think he could play for any any of the clubs in the Premier League, but I really hope he stays and uh, keeps keeps playing like he did yesterday. As Matt said, knocking it around with Ross Barkley. It was just, it was fantastic. It was fantastic to watch. And you genuinely watched it as well. The most significant thing to me was watching it and you were watching Aston Villa attack the Premier League champions and you genuinely thought they were going to score virtually every time they attacked them. That's a credit to how Villa were playing and also a slight, slight worry for Liverpool, maybe. I was going to ask Gregor what he felt about Liverpool, whether they should be worried at all in terms of that defensive performance because I felt they'd been clinging on slightly and some of that back four just aren't up to it. And I wonder if your earlier point about fatigue is their main issue. Yeah, but I think the the bigger point is is their kind of the reliance on. Well, I suppose that ties in. Yeah, they, you know they need they need energy as probably more than any team, and without without uh, Manny, and you know you've got to be honest as well. You know, two goals were deflections. Adrian came in and gifted them a goal to start with. That's not to take anything away from Villa, but there were some just uh, the three goals, goals, a few mitigating factors. Yeah, <laughs> but. The bigger issue is undoubtedly that, uh, you know, uh, but again, you know, as I described last week, you know, Klopp's not going to change that. <laughs> He's not going to change that. He's going to look at it and say, you know, we need to get back up to that level. We need to get back up to that level of energy and, and industry. And that's the way we're playing. So, you know, could be an exciting season. 
hopefully it will be, has been already. Uh, just to remember to enjoy more of our award-winning sports journalism, subscribe to The Times, The Sunday Times as well today. You'll get one month free. Search thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game online. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Support comes from ServiceNow, the AI platform for business transformation. You've heard the hype around AI. The truth is... AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. ServiceNow is the platform that puts AI to work for people across your business, removing friction and frustration for your employees, supercharging productivity for your developers, providing intelligent tools for your service agents to make customers happier, all built into a single platform you can use right now. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Visit servicenow.com slash AI for people to learn more. And now we have to speak about a managerial legend who is in the times at the moment in the shape of Arsene Wenger. He's been giving us extracts from his new autobiography, My Life in Red and White. It's so intriguing for anyone who's an Arsene Wenger, Wenger fan, an Arsenal fan or not, to be perfectly honest. He talks about the club that was his obsession, as he calls it. He talks about leaving after 22 years and just how difficult that was for him. He says, my whole life has swung between loving victory and despairing defeat. He talks just about how he was treated and perceived during the years that he wasn't as successful. And of course, he talks about his invincibles and the great success he had at the club. And, and many people have felt the way that he departed Arsenal was very harsh in many ways. And certainly, you know, with all due respect, he could have left with a lot more decorum. It almost felt like it came out of the blue and he was pushed out of the club. And after basically taking Arsenal to a higher level, I felt it was harsh, but I wonder what you guys think. Matt, what did you make of Arsene Wenger in those final few years in charge? Um, well, I, I think it was sad above anything in the way, you know, it's sort of this, what had been a great career fizzled out with so much rancour. And I think that was just reflected in, it's reflected in the brilliant Robert Crampton interview we had in the magazine. I, I just read it and felt sad pretty much the whole way through reading the extracts. I feel sad because it reinforces that, you know, I was thinking about it, you know, great people in any profession, and we see it so often in sport, are obsessed. They are obsessed. But actually to read the Wenger stuff, he's more obsessed even than we realise, certainly than, you know, Alex Ferguson obviously was his great sort of, you know, rival. You know, Alex Ferguson went off and, you know, obviously caused its own controversy about horses and collecting red wine and, and found a life because he was so, uh, yeah, blinkered about, life Arsenal became his everything and because Arsenal became his everything that is what infuses some sadness in the way it ended and in the way he talked about Arsenal now the fact that he has no connection with the club the fact that he doesn't you know he sort of even described you know drives past Highbury and sort of you know his heart is obviously in Highbury because that's where he had the greatest successes and how you know he's, you know the idea of Arsene Wenger sort of driving around London and sort of going along you know going along past past this old stadium that's now, uh, you know, now flats is, I, I just found that one, you know, this sort of really, really sad image. It's certainly very sad, but I, I, part, part of me, and I, I'm, not, I'm not dismissing the idea that it is sad and that he achieved great things, but if you read, if you read some of the extracts from the book, before the departure and the final years, which could have been, you know, he could have been handled better, 
and he could have been treated with a greater level of respect. There's that feeling of sadness seems to pervade everything that he did at Arsenal. When he talks about losing the Invincibles run against Manchester United, he talks about how they weren't able to get over it and that they drew the next two games. He talks about still being consumed with not lo- not winning the Champions League final and losing to Barcelona in the way that they did and how he's not been able to watch it back. I, I was struck not only feeling sad about how it ended and thinking, oh, that was a shame for a great of the game. I was struck by also how sad he seemed to be about lots of his moments during his career that were actually far higher points in terms of success and in terms of opportunity that it seems to be consumed by the negative of you know I mean they were beaten by a very good Barcelona team in the Champions League and they played for 10 men with most of the game and he's talking about I can't believe we lost that and I can't watch the game but that's how you act when you're someone who's devoted your entire life to a sport and and I used use the word monastic. I used I I lived a monastic life devoted to football. I neglected those around me. So like it's under, that's why his reaction to to losing any game was so so acute. You know, I absolutely felt I felt exactly the same as you, Matt. I, I wrote down the word sad. It was like even even the extracts of the book feels sad. It feels like he's writing them upon reflect you know, and he's reflecting with sadness. Uh, so you're right, Tom. He's reflecting with sadness on on everything that's gone. But I think part of that is because he's he's en- it's ended and he's a couple of years on now and he's looking back and sort of maybe questioning was it worth it? And I think that's as Matt says, that's something that everyone does when it comes to an end because, you know, like the old saying, you know, all political careers end in failure. It's the same with kind of someone who Who's, who devotes their entire life to, to one thing, it turns out that you neglect a lot of other things in life and there'll come a point when it's all over when you go, was it really worth it? But I just wondered whether, talking about those two moments in particular, whether... Oh, the dog's, the dog's here. Sorry, I'm being heckled again. Yeah. No, he's, he's, he's off out for a walk, so don't worry. I think that's a pass. Whenever we go longer than an hour, he's like, like a little alarm. <laughs> Some, Shut up. Someone's, someone's going to say I'm barking. Um, no, all I was going to say was just, and this is not to say whether this is right or wrong, but I was struck by a thought that if... Yes, he's reflecting now on how sad that is and thinking what might have been. But if he had those feelings in the moment as well, so that when the you know when the Invincibles lost their title, if he had that feeling, if you sat there on the coach back for weeks afterwards, and same with the Champions League, if he spent the entire summer preseason prep for the next season still consumed by that Champions League final, whether that would have actually had an effect on the Arsenal that we saw. That was what I was struck by, whether I was struck by a sense that this really got to him and there was almost a cumulative level of sadness that built up from those moments. Once the Invincibles ended and once they lost that Champions League final, I'm speculating as whether there was a cumulative effect of gradually, you know, ever-growing sadness (laughs) not not winning those moments. You know, that's what it felt like to me. That perhaps I've, you know, misinterpreted. I think the sad thing for me... Um, That's really sad this ending, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it's not even that. It's just, I don't think he was treated particularly well by football. And I think the perception of Arsene Wenger was the reason that he didn't go straight into another managerial job. Because with all due respect, you know, in the last few years at Arsenal, he won several FA Cups. I mean, it's not like he was this sort of awful coach who, you know, okay, they didn't reach the Champions League for the last couple of years. I mean, it wasn't like he had suddenly become a horrendous manager. And by the way, in many of his years at Arsenal, he did, he'd reached the top four with pretty awful squads. I mean, it wasn't like he always had world-class players. We think of Vieira and Omri and Petit and some of the great players that he had. I mean, his Arsenal scores were not always full of incredible players. And and for 90% of his time there, he managed to get remarkable teams out on the pitch who, who it's, kept a very, very high standard. So to see football as a whole just put him on this funeral pyre, push it out into the lake and fire their arrow, arrow, uh, you know, fiery arrows into him, you know, and just sit back and watch it and say, you know, this guy just left football basically. And okay, he's come back and he's got a job with FIFA and France got him involved in doing a bit of work. But it was it was patchy. I mean, this guy was should have walked into at least an ambassadorial role with Arsenal and certainly, a, 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 you know, 
All right, you're shaking your head, but an ambassador. I mean, I'm saying you you pay your hospitality ticket, you get to meet Arsene Wenger. I mean, it's not like he he has a massive running in the in the club, but not yeah, that even would have been you know. Sad too. That would have been also very sad. That would have been the saddest thing of all. But but not yeah. even to, not even. I mean nothing. I mean nothing. I mean, and I don't I don't get that. They've got rid of the Gunnosaurus today. Maybe he could have been walking walking around in the outfit. He might be. He might be. But no, I, I think. I mean, he he would have had offers, you know. And PS, as he mentioned, yeah. you know, PSG came to him many times. By uh, Munich, the French national job. He could have had the England job. Um, on numerous occasions. Um, so, you know, he, he could have got a job in management, but I think, you know, I think he had lost his enthusiasm for that by the time he was, he was sat there. Um, and he, look, he did go, you know, uh, you know, I say the sadness at the same time, you know, he, he made mistakes. I mean, I, I know you're defending his record there and he did win some FA cups and they only, you know, they slipped out the champions league spots only in the last couple of years, but you know, he had stopped surprising us. I think that was the thing, hadn't he? You know, he'd, he'd built this reputation on, you know the the player he found who he you know polished into a world-class player and it'd been a long time since we'd seen that type of work in the transfer market been a long time since tactically it surprised us you know he was become very dogmatic you know i mean the amount of press conferences i went to where he would say you know i know we lost two nil but we played better and you'd be like well uh, <laughs> you know there, there became this, this sort of dogmatic view in his head about how his team was going to play and that was going to be the right way regardless of the result and and that used to infuriate me because he's such an intelligent man but he became say so stubborn um in that respect so uh, you know let's not you know his departure was sad partly through his own effect i think there's no doubt about that but i just think at the same time when he says you know i've got no contact with the club at all um that does seem to be to be something lost there that you know a guy who's given 22 years has rebuilt the place as 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 you know the stadium you know he, he sort of pretty much designed the taps in that you know it, it seems pretty remarkable that he would not have someone at Arsenal would not have sat down and just said right we need we need to heal this somehow but there is also a point with that about you know just hanging around the place in terms of he he was the, he was Mr Arsenal for so long and he did you know design the changing rooms and all that, all that kind of stuff but how you know I wonder how Mikel Arteta would be getting on now at Arsenal with Arsene Wenger as a honorary director of football you know being being rolled out in his club suit to comment on x y and z you know, I jog on. You've had your moment. Like, yeah. <laughs> like he had long enough, and we spent so much time, you know, as journalists talking about how long is he going, how long is he going to cling on, you know, how long is he going to stay, and it's, it sounds brutal, but football's a brutal sport. And Mikel Arteta is now building his version of Arsenal. Arsene Wenger had his version of Arsenal, and I, I think I'm not going to use the word again, but it is, it is a great shame that there wasn't some way in which we could have honoured him in terms of his prestige and all he did for Arsenal. But there's no way, I think, in modern football you could have hang, had him hanging around now. Just if, if, the, if Arsenal and Mikel Arteta are going to do anything, you know, moving, they need to move on. And it, it's harsh, but I, I don't see how he could have been a part of the club now. I agree. There had to be there had to be in space. There had to be in like a separation period. I think he probably could go back now actually. But I think in the immediate aftermath, there's no way he could have he's saying I would have accepted a job upstairs. Imagine Arsene Wenger. It's like, you know, cutting to the stands to see Alex Ferguson all the time when just after he left and David Moyes looking like a ghost in the touchline. And you know, that was even different because Ferguson parted on his terms. He said, I'm leaving and I'm passing the, the kind of you know, I'm passing it over to you now. It wasn't that way with Arsenal. He was pushed out, so you can't push him out and then say and then put him upstairs and he's kind of hanging over the whole time. But now there's a bit of, been a bit of time, and he, you know, he. I think he probably could have some role Arsenal certainly now or in the next year or so. If Manchester United needed a, an interim boss until the end of the season, who would do a better job from here on out, Arsenal or or Ole Gunnar Solskjaer? <laughs> I mean, I'd love to see it. Pochettino. Yeah, well, I mean, Miss Mauricio Pochettino should be going to Manchester United. I mean, but Arsene Wenger does say he was offered the Manchester United job at one point. Hugh, would you have taken him? God, it, well, it depends when, doesn't it? God, I mean, no, it was... no, but that's the point, isn't it? You're saying about how sad you were watching a great of the, of the game. You're a Manchester United fan. Would you have taken Arsene Wenger? After Ferguson left, the the ultimate, the greatest baton pass ever. 
2002 it was when Sven was going to get it as well. I think I would have then, certainly, because um, just to see the Arsenal fans' faces, to be perfectly <laughs> honest, it would have been worth it alone. But but what I really meant was to see sort of clubs, even mid-table teams, you know, even, even well, I suppose championship teams couldn't afford Arsene Wenger, but to see sort of mid-table teams never even linked with a guy who's won this league, you know, numerous times, who's won multiple trophies, FA Cups, you know, that seems weird and it might be a financial thing but it certainly felt like football decided you know he's done and and I found that weird because he was still winning trophies when he when he retired so you know uh, you've, have you got a favourite Arsene Wenger moment standing on top at Old Trafford when they were losing that is the best arms outstretched like arms that. outstretched <laughs> where can I go he's been sent off to the stands it's a, that, that is also I'm not going to use the word again it's a great shame that that's the first thing I think of when I think of Arsene Wenger <laughs> yeah. but that was that was up there with same as Louis van Gaal pretending to fall over on the touchline just great little moments <laughs> when managers of great intelligence poise uh, you know great composure lose it like that in such a petulant manner fantastic we love this idea well we certainly did for many years about this urbane you know, the professor and all that stuff and I remember seeing him once uh, obviously away from camera but um, there had been some issue uh, around a press conference anyway he went off with the Arsenal press officer and absolutely gave both barrels like you know effing and blood you know and I suddenly sort of seen this sort of you know Wenger off camera screaming expletives at someone um and I just uh, thought yeah it was just uh it was refreshing to see that he wasn't just you know he wasn't just standing there sort of reading Sartre all the time it's exactly it's exactly how Tom Clark treats his digital team when he's not on this podcast he sounds nice but trust me in that office unbelievable no uh, guys, comment on that one <laughs> listen Tom Clark Gregor Robertson Matt Dickinson thank you for your time thank you all for listening as well you you can subscribe to the times and the sunday times for more of the latest news from the footballing world search the times.co.uk forward slash the game online and get one month free Support comes from ServiceNow, the AI platform for business transformation. You've heard the hype around AI. The truth is, AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. ServiceNow is the platform that puts AI to work for people across your business, removing friction and frustration for your employees, supercharging productivity for your developers, providing intelligent tools for your service agents to make customers happier all built into a single platform you can use right now. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Visit servicenow.com slash AI for people to learn more.